We're in James chapter 4 today. It's in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, and we're going to be addressing verses 13 to 17 today. We talked about in previous sermons how James really turned the corner in chapter 4. All of his pastoral shepherding language of my brothers, my dear brothers, turns to some pretty aggressive confrontation in chapter 4. Uh, it kind of reaches a climax in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says to his readers, You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? It really gets their attention. And then he addresses issues of pride by saying how we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and He will exalt us at the proper time. And he's continuing that line of uh, confrontation today in chapter 4, verse 13. This is what he says to us. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James reminds us that life is short. It's unpredictable. I read this week a story of Coleman Mockler. He was considered as one of uh, the top models of an effective CEO. He went to Harvard Business School, graduated with his MBA, and went to work for Gillette Corporation steadily worked his way up the ladder to become CEO. And although Gillette was 75 years old when he came to the company, he took the company to new heights of success. Under his management, they came to dominate the market, and after 16 years as CEO, Coleman was at the top of the world. Forbes magazine had just put him on the cover of their next issue, celebrating his leadership and success. The magazine wouldn't hit the newsstands for another week, but on the morning of January 25th, 1991, they sent him an advanced copy to review. The rest of his executives literally applauded him as he carried the magazine back to his office. In so many ways, it was a fantastically good day for Coleman. Decades of hard work had brought him to this point, and he had beaten back three hostile takeover bids and revolutionized the company. He had increased the value of the stock 50-fold, and he was literally celebrated on the cover of the business world. And with millions in the bank, he had just announced that he would be retiring within a few months. But there was one thing that made it an unexpectedly tragic day. With the staff applauding, Coleman walked down the hall, stepped into his office, shut the door, and collapsed to the floor. Within moments, he was dead of a massive heart attack still clutching the Forbes magazine that featured him on the cover. I was talking to someone in the first service, and Coleman actually found the Lord at Harvard Business School, of all places. And so, you know, at least he knew where he was going. But what what an illustration of being at the top of your game, having achieved everything that you ever hoped to achieve, millions in the bank, and you're now finally getting ready to enjoy retirement, probably spend more time with your family, which he probably hadn't spent a lot of time in, in all the work that he put in at the company, and life is gone. It's just gone. 
And James is reminding us that you and I are not in control of the future. We lay the best plans, we dream dreams, we chart out goals, but we cannot ensure that we will be here tomorrow. We can't even ensure that we will go to lunch today. And so James addresses that with us. And I believe there's three dangers in our text that he addresses, all in the form of P words. And uh, there's an outline for you in the bulletin if you want to take notes. The first thing that I see him addressing is the danger of prosperity. The danger of prosperity. He says in verse 13, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. From the outset, I want to say there's nothing wrong with prosperity. There's nothing wrong with having money, and there's nothing wrong with having a lot of it. If you read throughout the Bible, many of the Old Testament patriarchs were blessed beyond belief. They were very, very wealthy. The question is not how much money you have, it's what you do with it, and how you handle that. It's kind of like the old adage, you know, does the money or do the things have you, or do you have a grip on them? Huge difference. Do you possess the things or do the things possess you? And James is addressing this, this prosperity uh, attitude within his readers and his audience of this group of people, many of whom seem to be merchants, that have this deliberate, self-confident planning mode. They decide where they go, when they will go, and how long they will stay. And they're very prideful about that. We have enough money and independence and opportunity to go anywhere in the world that we want to go. And we can cut out any time we want to and stay for as long as we want. And uh, that's the nature of who we are. And they're very proud of that fact. And they're pretty headstrong about the outcome of all of their plans. They will make money. They will succeed. They will turn a profit. Well, the people that James has been describing... It was a very familiar picture for this first century audience because in the first century, there was a lot of growth taking place in the Hellenistic cities around Palestine, around Jerusalem, the the places that had heavy Greek influence on them, especially in like the area of the Decapolis, the 10 city region uh, surrounding Galilee. And Jews were especially active in these ventures. Many of them had left Palestine to settle in these Mediterranean cities in pursuit of financial gain. They wanted to do better than their forefathers. They wanted to have that independence. They wanted to be able to have a more stable way of life. And so they went um, seeking to pursue profit. And James is not chastising the merchants or these planners for their plans, or even for their desire to make a profit. What he's rebuking them for is the way in which they pursue these goals. Very, very different. There's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be prosperous and to make a profit. But the way that you go about that is very important. And James is accusing them of of doing these things with worldly self-confidence. Well, the fleeting nature of life is addressed throughout the Bible. We see it particularly in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 1, is almost word for word like our passage. It says, Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Do not boast about tomorrow, because you don't know what a day may bring forth. The book of Job and the book of Psalms especially 
describe life repeatedly is, is like a breath. David writes in Psalm 39, verse 5 and 6, You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows. And all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. Solomon, David's son, uh, recorded in the Bible as the wisest man that ever lived apart from Jesus Christ, who was obviously God in human flesh. Solomon was granted whatever wish that he wanted. God told him, whatever you desire, I'll fulfill for you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God was impressed with that and, and granted it with that. And Solomon was very prosperous, very wealthy, very successful. And yet he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of looking back at life, and he is mourning and regretting all the vanities of life, that life can be so empty. And one of the things that he mourns and grieves is that you can acquire all of this stuff and rise to this pinnacle of success, but you can't ensure who that gets passed on to. And he says, who knows if the person who comes after me is going to squander that and waste that and blow it all away. And that drove him nuts, you know, thinking, I've worked so hard for this, and who knows what the next person will do with it. But that's the nature of life. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Well, especially close to James's teaching were the words of Jesus. We've seen that many times, that James draws upon the actual words of Jesus in the Gospels. And Jesus talks in Luke chapter 12 and warns his audience of jealousy. And he says that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Some of the staff and I went to a, a seminar this week put on by this phenomenal ministry called uh, Identity Exchange. And basically, they see all of the Bible as an exchange of identity. And uh, so many examples of that, like when, when Daniel was taken away, basically abducted, human trafficked as a young teenager to Babylon. One of the very first things that the Babylonians did to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all of the other young kids that were taken out of Israel, away from home and family and everything familiar, is they were renamed. And the point of the Babylonians was to give them a new identity. It was to try and strip away their roots and their family and all their history and their religion and all of their knowledge and, and infiltrate them with this new Babylonian knowledge and identity. And so they, they renamed them. But unfortunately, Daniel and his friends were the only four that really retained their true identity in the midst of all those things. But the world constantly wants to have us find our identity in what we do. And the speaker that was speaking this week was talking about, if you draw your identity from your, from your career, you will slowly die because that it's not enough to sustain you. An identity might be something that you use a lot in your career, but an identity is something that you take into your career and you take out of your career. It's something you have irregardless of what you do for a living. But many people get into doing what they're doing simply because it makes a lot of money. Or it brings them a lot of independence or a lot of freedom, and yet they hate what they do. 
and they can't wait to get out of it, and it's something else. And it, it's sad to see how many times we, we just identify ourselves by what we do. You know, if you're in a group of men, one of the first things, go, what do you do, you know? And that's pretty much what guys brag about and talk about and measure each other up. Oh, where'd you go to school? You know, and all of these markers that somehow reveal the, the, the code of who, who we are, what our identity is. And Scripture is talking about having an identity that relies and depends upon the living God and is not something that is autonomous or independent of God. That's what James is addressing. Well, Christ goes on in addressing this audience in Luke 12 after he says that a person's life does not consist of merely what they own. And he tells a short story about a rich man. The Bible calls these short stories parables. And he talks about a, uh, a guy that made overconfident plans. And this is what he says in Luke 12, verses 16 to 20. Jesus says, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, What should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down all my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have more than enough stored away for many years to come. So take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. And who knows who will get everything that you worked so hard for? God is reminding his audience, Christ is reminding the people around him, his followers, that there's nothing wrong with making plans for the future. But if we ever get to a place of self-sufficiency where we think it's all about just cruise control and, and being independent of God, not having to wait upon him for our next meal or for our decisions, but thinking that we are basically God, or we're in a, God ourselves, we're in a tough place. And that's what Jesus is addressing here is, is the mindset of this man. I'll sit back, I'll take it easy, I'll eat, drink, and be merry. I was saying in first service, you know, there's nothing wrong with the American concept of retirement. But if retirement means that I get to a place where I just shut down, where I proclaim to everybody else, I've worked and I've served my whole life, it's time now for me to be served. I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. That's a very dangerous place. And I think it's very hard to support biblically. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with saving and preparing. But there's something wrong with coming to a place where we stop giving out into the lives of others and think that our whole goal and purpose is to be served. The mentality represented here is wrong because this guy is just thinking that all that he's acquired and gained is just merely for himself. There's no thought here about, I have more than my barns can store. I know, I'll give to the poor. I'll help those in need around. None of that. It's just all self-consuming pride in what he has and thinking, I've just bought myself 20 years of sitting back doing nothing. And God is saying, you're a fool because you don't know that your life is going to be taken from you tonight. And then who's it going to go to? This parable, this story, and many others like this in the Gospels, is really the polar opposite, the polar extreme of the story of the Israelites wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. 
And God fed them with bread from heaven for 40 years. Bread from heaven in the morning and quail in the evening for, for their meat. He sustained them. And you all probably remember the story that if they gathered a little or they gathered a lot, it was enough for that day. It, it sustained them. It fulfilled them. But if, if they tried to save it for the next day, it rotted. It spoiled. It went bad. Because God wanted them to, to seek this sustenance each new day, to wait upon Him and live in dependence upon Him, not to store it up and think, okay, I'm cool. I don't. The only day that they got a double portion was the day before the Sabbath so that they could rest on the Sabbath and not have to gather. But it's the polar opposite. And, and James is saying that when we get outside of dependency upon God and think that we call the shots and that we own the future and we control our destiny and the direction of our lives, we are sadly mistaken. Well, secondly, James warns of the danger of presumption in verses 14 and 15. The danger of presumption. He said, yet you don't know that your life, what it will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James is in effect saying to his audience, to his readers, how can you being mere humans, how how can you presume to dictate the course of future events? Please understand, as I said, James is not down or rebuking plans for the future. You know, saving for retirement, maybe life insurance, or you know, other things that, that might actually represent good stewardship, you know, and looking ahead and planning ahead. But when we look to those things as the things that we depend upon for our security, for our peace of mind, for our stability in life, we're we're in trouble. Those things can be, become gods. James is saying that. Assuming that we control the duration and the direction of our lives is simply inconsistent with what Scripture says about God sovereignly being in charge of, of all human events and details. And it's, it's astounding to me in verse 15 that he says, Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. It's not just we will do this and that, but if God wills, first of all, we'll, we'll just live. So unless God wills, you know, I won't go to lunch today. You won't wake up tomorrow and go to work or do whatever. You know, that's how basic it is. Our very existence going forward is fragile and brief and dependent upon the sovereignty of God and his will. And we can't control that. And that's the first thing we have to understand. And then if I happen to be alive tomorrow, the plans that I would like to you know, participate in, I need to lay those before the Lord and say, God, is this the best use of my time? Is this what you want for me? Now, I understand that if the Lord wills can become just like this magic formula that we, we repeat and it just becomes this rote kind of dead thing that, that means nothing. And, and we, can, we can fall into two extremes. One is Every single little thing we do, we can say, well, if the Lord wills, you know, and we're waiting upon the Lord and praying and listening, and we never do anything because we don't hear from him, and we're just, well, I, I would have done something, but I didn't hear his voice, and I didn't hear his direction. That's one extreme. The other extreme is just running ahead in life, just blindly pursuing anything and everything we want and saying, God, if this is wrong, just stop me. 
which by the way is a very dangerous prayer because he will. He will stop you. But the question is when. He might let you do a lot of foolish, crazy things before he stops you. And so it's not one extreme or the other, but it's, it's simply bringing our plans before the Lord. I, the seminar that I was referring to earlier, this identity thing, was powerful. One of the takeaways that stood out to me is that this guy said that God never answers why questions. He said, stop you know, littering your prayers with why questions. God, why? Why did this have to happen? Why did that take place? Why did this person do? He said, you don't see any examples in Scripture of God answering why questions. What God always answers is, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to know? And then what do you want me to do about what you've told me? That's a question he will always answer. And so part of, if the Lord wills, that whole hard attitude that James wants us to have is laying our plans and our, our future before the Lord and saying, God, what do you want me to know? What, what is it that you have for me? How do you want to use me? Where are you at work and how do you, how do you want to involve me? Well, the, the third danger here is pride in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. James is correcting and rebuking any kind of planning for the future that stems from pride. And the people that James is addressing, their their problem is that they've left God out of the equation. They've left God out of the equation. And not only have they left God out of their lives, but they brag about it on top of it. In, in essence, they're, they're proclaiming their autonomy and independence from God. You know, we don't need the Lord. We're doing just fine. If we ever get in trouble, we might consult with Him. But we're doing just fine. And this problem, as James makes clear, is, is this underlying attitude in their heart that they brag and they boast. That's His charge against them. And that word for boast is used a lot of times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses it the most. James only uses it twice in this letter. But at the very root of that word, it means putting our confidence in something or rejoicing over something. We, we are the best English equivalent for us is arrogance or bragging. But at its, at its core, it means to place your confidence in something. And I was thinking about, you know, many of us don't consider ourselves as prideful people. We don't consider ourselves as arrogant because we're not going around continually bragging about our accomplishments to our friends or to different people. We're not listing our, our pedigree, you know, and all the things that we've, you know, studied and achieved. And, but pride can show up in, in kind of subtle ways if we're placing our confidence in the wrong things. Placing our confidence in anything other than God is a, is a false source of confidence. It's a misdirected object of confidence. And that's what James wants us to see. The Phillips translation of the Bible, I love how this verse is translated. It says, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. You love the fact that you have the money and the means and the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, for however long you want. And nobody can tell you otherwise. Nobody can stand in the way. You pride yourself in that. The only other place in the New Testament where the same word for arrogance is used is in 1 John chapter 2. Listen to how John uses it. 1 John 2.16. 
He says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. James is saying that driving, lustful, boastful, fleshly nature that just sees what it wants in life and goes after it, that doesn't come from God. That doesn't come from your Heavenly Father. That, that, comes, from, that comes from the world and finds its, its root in sin. And he says it's, it's this pride of life, this arrogant sense of self-sufficiency that's so characteristic of the world. This is what James says. This is just evil. This is bad. Stay away from it. And finally, James closes with verse 17, which we have come to know as kind of the definition of the sin of omission. The sin of omission. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Some of us, there's really two types of sin. Sins of commission, things that we commit, and sins of omission, things that we should have done but didn't do. Now, most of us, if you're like me, my head gets swimming just with the wrong things that I do. Not to mention all the things that I should have done and didn't do. You know, I can be guilty enough and live a life wrapped up in guilt and shame just over the wrong things that I've done blows my mind, it overwhelms me to think of all of the things, all the times that God kind of stirred my heart to do something and I ignored it or just kind of went by. And, and ultimately, you know, David prays about this in the Psalms, not just the things that he's done, but the things that he should have done. And all of that guilt and should lead us into deeper dependence upon God. You know, when we sing that song, we sang last week, I need you, oh, I need you. You know, like seriously, God, I need you. I am broken. I am sinful. I am I'm incomplete without you. And our sin should drive us to that point of dependency. There's two places that stand out to me in the, old, in the, in the New Testament that talk about sins of omission. One is in the parable of the talents that we've talked about a lot. And the one servant who buried his talent in the ground is judged on the basis of what he should have done with that. He thought the safe route was just to bury it and do nothing. And his master, who represents the Lord, judges him for doing nothing when he should have done something. The second part is the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, when Jesus is judging people at the end of time, and he's, he's saying to the goats, you know, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. You know, I was in need and you, you turned me away. And they say, Lord, when? And he says, inasmuch as you didn't do this to the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. Many examples in Scripture of sins of omission, things that we should have done but failed to do. And the point of all of this is not, this is a general principle. The one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it for him, it's sin. But really what James is saying here is directly tied to our passage. He said, I've just told you that God wants to be a part of your life. He wants to be intimately involved with your plans for the future and all that you do. And now that I've told you that, it's sinful for you to live any other way. That's really what he's saying specifically. That's the application of this verse. To whom much is given, much is required. That's why James said earlier in his book, let not many of you become teachers my brothers, knowing that as such you incur a stricter judgment. The more you know, the more you're held accountable and responsible for. And James has just said, God 
wants to be involved in your plans for the future, your plans for everything. He doesn't want you to act independently and autonomously. Now that you know that, if you don't involve him, it's sin. Well, I want to wrap all this up as we lead into communion today by just acknowledging, I I think the greatest sin of omission is to to leave God out of your life. To leave God out of your life. And, And maybe there are some of you here today that have never placed your faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ. You've never entered into a relationship with God through Christ. God has offered you eternal life. He sent His Son to die on a cross, and yet we just kind of say, thanks. And maybe that, that's, that's nice for other people, but I don't need that. The greatest insult is to just kind of reject that. And as Christians, we can do the same thing. We can say, okay, now that I've accepted the Lord, now that my future is secure... I'm just going to live like the rest of the world, you know? I'm just going to enjoy this ride as long as I'm on this planet because it's short and it's brief, so I might as well have fun while I'm here. And there's nothing wrong with having fun. But if that's it, if we don't realize that each one of us was given gifts and talents and created for a purpose to to work out God's plans and purposes in this world, like Paul says that we're his workmanship created for good works, in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, then we've missed the boat. If we think that the end goal is all about us and just, you know, living the American dream and, and satisfying ourselves, and who cares about everybody else or good luck, to, then we've missed the boat. The greatest sin of omission is to leave God out and to fail to look for Him in all of life. That person I referred to earlier saying every day we should wake up and say, God, what do you want me to know? Where, where are you at work? How do you want to involve me? God will always honor that prayer. I think again of the Israelites wandering in the, in the desert for 40 years, and God sustained his people with bread from heaven, which they said was very sweet to the taste. And how interesting that when God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and came to earth, that Jesus declared... I am the bread of life. The one who eats of me will never hunger. And when he finally instituted communion on that, that first dinner, that first night, before he was, the, the day before he was crucified, he said, this bread represents my body, which is given for you. It represents my body given for you. And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, which represents my blood. You proclaim my death until I come back. You proclaim that there is salvation and eternal life and no other God, no other person, but through me alone. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. I'm the gate. Let's pray.